thunder of hoofs, whir of arrows, snarl of rifles, and again the blood of two races stained the history of the West. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken, and saddles and cowboy boots are being distributed for an immersive Old West podcast listening experience. But before the credits start a-rolling here at the Golden Silence Ponderosa, I just want to remind you to follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on this here little podcast. And for all of you tweeters on the Twitter... The Golden Silence Podcast exists there, too. You can search for Golden Silence Cast or tweet us at Golden Silence 1. Golden Silence and the number 1. It is in these online saloons and corrals that we let you know what movies are in the pipeline and how best to watch them. You'll also find other odds and ends and show notes. Then we'll mosey back on here for a little bit of infotainment amongst friends. Now, the title on the marquee for today's Rough Riding episode is The Devil Horse. Whilst the last episode got us our sea legs, we are back on solid Old West ground for this 1926 Western, whose main character is a wonder horse. As the troops in our film fight back and attack on their fort, I find myself in an epic struggle to defend the movie description. The Devil Horse, directed by Fred Jackman, starring Rex the Wonder Horse, Yakima Canut, Gladys McConnell, and Bob Cortman. Cinematography by Floyd Jackson, produced by Hal Roach Studios, distributed by Path Exchange, and released on December 12, 1926. In the opening credits of this film, we are told that the Native Americans appearing in this flick are from the Crow tribe. So, in lieu of a world timeline in 1926, I thought I'd pass on some interesting dates from the fascinating history of the Crow as it leads up to when this movie takes place. Now, in 1743, the first white contact was made by French-Canadian trader Pierre Gautier de Varennes at Little Bighorn River. In 1805, the Lewis and Clark expedition met the Crow tribe at Pompey's Pillar, which is now a national monument in Yellowstone County, Montana. And in 1825, the Friendship Treaty was signed between the United States, represented by General Henry Atkinson and Major Benjamin O'Fallon, and the Crow leader, Chief Longhair. As the movie goes on, I'll talk a little bit more about the Crow people, but before we get too far, let's talk a bit about the version of this film we will be watching. For this little watch party of ours, we'll be using The Devil Horse on Amazon Prime as our reference point. Now, by the time you hear this, it will probably not be on Amazon Prime anymore. Now, when I started researching and writing this episode, I thought, oh, this is a cool episode. It's on Prime. Everyone can watch it. And just before recording, Amazon said in about a week, it will be off Amazon Prime. So unfortunately, by the time you hear this, it's probably not going to be on Amazon Prime. But that is the version I am watching for this it's a no-frills, slim, trim, music-free 53 minutes. The quality on this version, picture-wise, is about as good as can be expected. But this is also a musicless experience. Like Alice in Wonderland and Ella Cinder's before, this one rides in with no musical score. And like with those previous ones, it's very annoying. But once you get into the world of the film, it can make it a touch easier to deal with. 
this there's also versions on YouTube. Now, some of them on YouTube do have music, but this is music that is put in by the poster. And one of them was a series of different songs used to accompany the film. And I will say that the music did fit really well. So whoever the poster was, he did a really good job of picking songs that went that accompanied the movie quite well. So since this probably won't be on Amazon Prime, that might be a good option to check out if you want to follow along with us as we talk about the movie. As a warning, though, when searching the internet for The Devil Horse, be aware that there is a 12-part serial with the same name from 1932 or 31, 32, somewhere around there. So if you're searching, the one we are watching is made in 1926 and is going to be about 53 minutes long. Now, as we start this, for starting this at the Biography Corral, it's only appropriate that we first dive into the life of the one and the only Rex the Wonder Horse. And he is the devil horse in question. He, over time, has been known as the King of the Wild Horses and the Wonder Horse. But being a devil horse was no misnomer. In his defense, he wasn't gifted the greatest of upbringing, so that can lead to him being a little bit of a terror on on set first a bit of a time jump forward before we go back rex would eventually end up in golden colorado i bring that up to talk about an article from the golden history golden history museum and park website by mark dodge he gives us a look into rex's early life and it is a bit of a sad one now he says rex was sired by a registered morgan named headlight the stallion that was called king of the morgans Rex was born in 1915 and named Casey Jones. There's evidence that he was abused by cowboys on the Selman Ranch who tried to break him before he was sold in 1917. Dodge continues, After a Colorado rancher bought him, he ran wild on the plains of eastern Colorado and may well have suffered abuse again in the violent sort of roundup that occurred to get him back. He killed one of the wranglers and the rancher ordered him shot but a reform school in Golden took him in to breed. They couldn't break him either, so they chained him in a stall for two years, and boys abused him there. From all that he suffered, he collected a wide range of odd and very violent behaviors. With Rex locked up in Golden, and things looking pretty bleak, Chick Morrison, a movie talent scout and real-life cowboy, stepped up and in to remove Rex from the reform school for $400. And after this, Morrison would begin training Rex. King of the Wild Horses was Rex's first feature. The film was released in 1924 and was directed by Fred Jackman, who would later direct The Devil Horse, as we will learn. It was also written and produced by Hal Roach and released through Path Exchange. More Devil Horse connections. But getting into the movie biz wasn't enough to reverse the e-true Hollywood story going on in Rex's life. Mark Dodge explains Chick Morrison's training methods after King of the Wild Horses. Chick refused any whip stick. Whip, Chuck refused any whip or stick. He always said his method was kindness. Rex broke several bones in Chick's body, and the man was on crutches when filming started, but never used any other aids to train Rex other than sugar and carrots. Very sadly, another rogue horse named Steamboat accidentally fell when Chick was training him for the second Rex movie and crushed Chick to death in June 1924. Dodge would go on to say that he believed 
Rex would have been healed of many of his violent behaviors if Chick had lived. Rex would follow King of the Wild Horses with Black Cyclone in 1925, which would be one of his most financially successful, The Devil Horse in 26, and Wild Beauty in 27. In the early 1930s, Rex would be in for another move, this time to Flagstaff, Arizona. Author Joe McNeil fills us in on his new digs in Arizona. Rex was the blue ribbon celeb in the movie livestock company owned by Flagstaff rancher and studio contact man Lee Doyle. Rex sired four look-alike offspring, and he and his family appeared in almost half the movies made in Sedona, Arizona during the 1930s. Low-budget kid pictures like Stormy and King of the Sierras that helped keep the area in Hollywood's radar until more expensive A Westerns made a comeback at the tail end of the decade. Rex's final post-film life isn't completely known. Joe McNeil was able to dig up some final facts on this front, and as a spoiler... Our pal Rex will not be the first animal to be featured in Where Are They Now? Uh, McNeil has this to say. He may have been sold to someone in Kanab, Utah before he died around 1940. Until then, he lived most of the time on Lee Doyle's ranch outside of Flagstaff, Arizona on the road to Sedona. The date and place of Rex's death is unknown. Now that we've talked about the animal side of things... Let's talk a little bit about the main human of the film, and that would be one Yakima Kanut. Now, if his name isn't jumping out to you as a legend of the film industry, it really, really should. You see, this is the exact reason I started this podcast. It's because of people like Yakima Kanut. So, I'll tell you, I wanted to try and do a shorter episode this time, so I found a short movie that I thought probably wouldn't take up too much time and would give listeners a shorter experience. So I sit down to watch, and as I research and I look deeper into this, I realize there's so much. Something that, on the surface, I didn't think there would be much going on with, but as I peeled back the layers, there it ended up being some really cool film history that I never would have known existed if I hadn't watched this movie. Now, like I said, this is the reason I started this podcast. It's because of people like Yakima Kanut. So I sit back to watch this movie about fighting horses and such. But when I dive a little bit deeper, I find a guy like Yakima, my mind is blown. Like, as I, told, as I tell you more about him, I hope your mind is equally blown. Not many people can legitimately be in the running for most interesting man alive during their lifetime. But this guy totally could have gotten a vote or two. And because... I watch this movie and I search for backstory and history. The way I watch many of the greatest movies ever made is forever changed. That may seem like hyperbole, but let me tell you some of Yakima Kanut's life story, and I'll let you out there in listener land be the judge. So, for our first roundup of sorts, let's turn to the New York Times for a little backstory into our man Yakima. This little snippet is from the May 27th, 1986 edition, which contained his obituary. Spoiler alert. Another spoiler alert, he is no longer with us, just so you know. Enos Edward Knut was born on November 29, 1986 in Colfax, Washington, and took his nickname from Washington's Yakima Valley. After a stint as a prize-winning rodeo rider, he moved on to Hollywood in the early 20s, working first as an actor in silent westerns. He turned to full-time stunt work after the advent of the talkies, substituting for a long list of stars, including John Wayne, Errol Flynn, Tyrone Power, 
Clark Gable, Henry Fonda, Roy Rogers, Randolph Scott, and Tex Ritter. Now, if that's not a murderer's row of acting talent, I don't know what is. So you got to be pretty good at whatever you do to have that list of credits uh, behind you. Now, the New York Times leaves us with a lot of info to digest and unpack. Knut went from big shot rodeo guy to big shot stunt guy for a who's who list of Hollywood A-listers. Sounds about right for your average career trajectory of a cowboy and rodeo rider. But for the benefit of those who have never jumped from the rodeo circuit to Tinseltown, let's see or hear how Yakima Knut did it. For more perspective on Yakima's early rodeo years, let's turn to an article entitled The Legend of Yakima Knut, written by Emily Olson for the East Oregonian newspaper. Olson writes, Knut grew up as a maverick, learning to hunt, trap, shoot, and fight. He broke his first bronc at the age of 11 in an act of vengeance. The horse had thrown his brother a few days earlier, cracking his skull. Olson continues, At age 16, Knut won a bronc competition at a country at a county fair in Colfax, Washington. He took to the circuit, and only a year later, in 1914, he was off to Pendleton Roundup, where he competed in saddle bronc riding and bulldogging, and received his lifelong nickname. He and two pals had downed a quart of Kentucky bourbon before trying out some broncs in advance of the competition. Needless to say, the horses were winning. At some point, Knut yelled, Bring out another one of your good broncs, and I'll show you what a Yakima rider can really do. A photographer from Portland named William Bowman snapped Knut upside down mid-ejection. He captioned it Yakima Knut. The Cowboys took to the nickname in jest, and it stuck. Now, as the rodeo years passed, Knut would continue a crazy good winning streak. It was also during the year, these years he won the Love Rodeo when he met Kitty Wilkes, who herself was a ladies' bronc riding championship winner. They were married at a show in Cowspell, Montana in 1917. They would eventually divorce in 1922. Rodeos weren't the only horsing around that Knut was doing in 1917. In between rodeos, he would break horses for the French government in World War I. In 1918, he would officially enlist in the United States Navy. In the fall of that year, he was given a 30-day furlough to defend his rodeo titles. He would be discharged in 1919, at which point he returned to the rodeo circuit. At this point in the Cowboys' journey, he was racking up wins and gaining notoriety. But it was a rodeo in Los Angeles that would turn his cowboy life into a Hollywood life. Again, this is from Emily Olson. Knut's first visit to Los Angeles for the, was for a rodeo competition. The year was 1919, and he decided to stick around through the winter, spending time with the emerging Western film social set. Former Pendleton steer roping champion Tom Grimes introduced Knut to director Tom Mix. By the next winter, Knut held a role as a horseman for a 12-part series called Lightning Bryce. It was his first role in a 50-year career that would include nearly 350 films. It was in 1920 that Yakima left Hollywood to get back onto the rodeo circuit. Again, he keeps raking in the first-place finishes and the trophies and the accolades. You name it, he won it. From saddle bronc riding competitions to steer bulldogging and a bunch of all-around Police Gazette championship belts, the man was doing things. Knut was in Hollywood for an awards ceremony when the acting bug returned and he was offered a deal for an eight Western, eight Western action pictures for producer Ben Wilson at Burwillow Studios. With bigger roles, Knut was ready to push the limits on film action sequences, sometimes to his own detriment. 
as we learn from author Deborah Lightfoot Sizemore in her article entitled Cowboy Stuntman, the Yakima Canut. Canut proved to be a natural in the fast-paced action shots. In chase scenes, canyon jumps, cliff-top leaps, leaps, and fisticuffs, he performed all of his own stunts, and often those of other actors as well. He perfected the flying mount, leapfrogging over the horse's rump into the saddle. Sizemore, though, lets us know that it wasn't all traditional glitz and glamour of the usual Hollywood star. The work was steady. Canut starred in eight westerns a year from 23 to 26. It was also dangerous. In one film, when his horse balked and threw him over the edge of a bluff, the actor fell 12 feet and broke his nose on the rocks below. The next bit is especially pertinent to our film adventure. Deborah Lightfoot Sizemore tells us, in the 1926 film The Devil Horse, he was bitten on the neck, knocked to the ground, and nearly trampled by the big black stallion of the title role. So apparently Rex the Wonder Horse was a bit of a terror on set. It's always a bummer when, Holly, when your Hollywood heroes end up being jerks at work, but luckily Kanat was okay so that we have ourselves a picture to watch today. Before we get too far, let's dip back into Kanat's stint with the Navy. Remember when he took the furlough for rodeo duty? He was stationed in Bremerton, Washington, and shortly after returning, some ill fortune befell our rodeo hero. In a 2019 article for HistoryLink.org, Catherine Beck fills us in. Upon his return to Bremerton, he fell victim to the Spanish influenza epidemic. He lay on a cot in an, armory, in an armory with hundreds of others bleeding from his mouth. His vocal cords were permanently damaged, giving him a weak, raspy voice. Yakima Canut, being the tough SOB he is, survived, but his voice paid the price. When describing his own voice, he would say that he sounded like a hillbilly in a well. Now, I backtracked a bit here to point out that Canut was now stuck with his voice suited for silent film. And it's about this point in his film career that this issue starts to, no pun intended, make itself heard. With the rise of the talkies, Canut would have to adapt. Fortunately, he saw his opening in what the new talkies lacked. Thrills, action, and adventure, Olson writes. It's his stunt work that Canut is most known for today. According to, the, according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Canut created the profession. On a personal note, Canut met Minnie Audrea Jaeger Rice at a party. They would be married on November 12, 1931. But back to stunts. That's what you want to hear about. You want to hear about jumps and flips and crashes. So in a Wired article by Lee Simmons, we find out why Canut is credited with the creation of the stuntman profession. The article is entitled, Action Heroes Owe Everything to Stunt Pioneer Yakima Canut. In this article, Lee Simmons says, Canut didn't just perform the stunts, or gags as he called them. He dreamed them up, figured out how to film them, and invented the rigging and techniques that made them possible. Having earned his spurs in the wild frontier days of filmmaking, when people died doing stunts that didn't even look like much, Canut made movie action both safer and more spectacular. While making a name for himself being the stunt double for the biggest stars of the day, like Tyrone Power, Errol Flynn, Roy Rogers, Clark Gable, etc., 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 it was his time working with John Wayne that pro would provide one of his deepest industry friendships. Beck explains, Wayne and Canut went on to make a long string of low-budget westerns during the 1930s and became lifelong friends. Wayne was said to have stolen Canut's speech patterns and his gait, which he made into his own signature walk. 
Catherine Beck continues, One of the innovations he developed with Wayne was to choreograph fight scenes, dramatizing them by using camera angles to make a series of fake punches look real. Until then, screen fights had been crudely improvised and often featured clumsy grappling. One of his most famous stunts came in the John Wayne classic Stagecoach, which would serve as basically a human highlight reel, in which some scenes, Canut would be the stunt double for multiple people in the same scene. Again, we go back to Lee Simmons from Wired Magazine to talk about the after effects of this successful stunt career. Tough hombre that he was, by the early 1940s, injuries had taken their toll. Doubling Clark Gable in Boomtown, Canut had a horse fall backwards on top of him forcing the saddle horn through his abdomen and severing his intestines. In 1943, a mountainside leap from the saddle went awry when his horse swerved away from the safety net. He snapped both legs at the ankle. This wear and tear would be the impetus to make another career transition. Though Canut would be taking a step back from doing actual stunts, he would become a top-flight stunt coordinator and also do work as a second-unit director. In this position, he would oversee the action scenes in epic films like Ivanhoe, Spartacus, El Cid, and Where Eagles Dare. Again, we go back to the East Oregonian and Olsen as she gives us a glimpse into his most famous, well-known, behind-the-camera career by the numbers. His most famous directing work takes place in Ben-Hur for one of the most, for one of this, for one of the most iconic scenes in film history. Canut orchestrated the wild chariot race using 18 cameras, 70 Lipizzaner horses, and a $15 million budget. So, it's at this point we're going to pause to just take a quick little pause on the Yakima Canut story. After the movie, we're going to talk a little bit about the later years of old Yak, but it was a heck of a story, right? Was your mind blown like mine was? I can't tell you what a surprise it was for me to fall down this rabbit hole. Always a fun surprise. You never know what you're going to find when you look into these old movies. And as I said earlier, having seen what Knut was responsible for, I will never look at action movies, and stunts in particular, the same. So as I sit back with a nice glass of whiskey, let's all sit back and enjoy The Devil Horse. Before we start the flick, I just wanted to put out a warning about some of the language in this breakdown. The movie was made in the time when Native American was nowhere near being a preferred nomenclature. Not even close. So, as you'll soon hear when we talk about this movie. When reading and recounting the dialogue and intertitles, I'm going to be doing so as they appear on screen. This movie, uh, as a lot of these movies are, is a time capsule to an earlier, but not always better time. This language does not reflect us here at the Golden Silence Podcast, but it is important to experience these stories in their original form. Now, with that public service announcement out of the way, let's get to the horsing around. What do you say? So, we open up How Roach Presents Rex the Wild Horse in The Devil Horse, a Fred Jackman production. Now, before we are fully enveloped by The Devil Horse, let's talk about one of the folks who made this picture happen. Harold Eugene Roach, a.k.a. Hal, was born on January 14, 1892, in Elmira, New York. According to his bio on TurnerClassicMovies.com, Roach was a director, a film producer, 
was a director and a film producer who was at the forefront of early Hollywood. He became one of the most important filmmakers of the silent era before making the successful transition to sound features and television. He was also responsible for launching several prominent careers, most notably Harold Lloyd in the, com in the comedic duo of Laurel and Hardy. For Devil Horse, not only did Hal Roach produce the picture, he also wrote it. So, with the title cards out of the way, comes a fun little thing that I, I've never seen. It's, it's your usual run-of-the-mill cast card, but with one notable exception. The top three spots are occupied by horses. There's three main horses, followed by the humans. And it's also here that we are told the movie features Indians of the Crow tribe. It is, we're told it's September 1874. The white man has invaded the buffalo hunting grounds, and the red anger inflamed the heart of the Indian. Native Americans climb along a cliff, watching a herd of buffalo run wild and free. At Medicine Lodge, Kansas, a great powwow of Indian chiefs resulted in a declaration of war against the pale-faced homeseekers. Now we see, when they're talking about this, we see scenes from this powwow. I have not the knowledge to know if this is a realistic scene. I like to think that having real members of the Crow tribe would lead to a certain amount of authenticity, but also, this is a film that was made in the 1920s, so it can be completely wildly fabricated and made up, so I don't know. Uh, if any of you out there know this kind of stuff, please let us know here at the Golden Silence podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Um, answer we'd love to have answers to some of these questions now courageous families we are told are seeking new wealth on verdant prairies that ran the crimson trails from fort to fort it is wagon train time but unbeknownst to our pale-faced pioneers an indian trap and ambush awaits them but all is calm at the moment and we are introduced to a young dave carson this little bit is where we get our first of three Jackman familial connections on this film. Fred Jackman Sr. directed the film, but his son made his on-screen debut here as the child version of Dave Carson. As an adult, the junior would become a successful director and cinematographer in his own right, but the devil horse seems to be his only acting credit. Dave Carson, unaware of the lurking dangers, happy in the companionship of his only pet, Little Rex. The film introduces us now to Lil Rex. Lil, L-I-L apostrophe Rex. That's, uh, that's how I refer to Rex as. Lil Rex. Rex was a motherless cold who, even in his baby awkwardness, showed the touch of civilization, breeding, intelligence. The baby horse we see here, whomever it is, is the cutest thing. A far cry from the Hellion that will take over the role uh, when he becomes an adult. Dave and Lil Rex are playing, and he is feeding his horse when the attack commences. The pioneers are no match for the attacking Native Americans. First, the leaders of the wagon train are killed, leaving the rest ripe for attack. The movie tells us thunder of hoofs, whir of arrows, snarl of rifles, and again, the blood of two races stained the history of the West. Carson, in protecting Rex, loads his rifle and gets a few shots on the marauders. He isn't able to fend them off, and Rex runs off in the violent confusion. With Rex gone, we see Dave jump into an abandoned wagon for protection. Too bad for him, the wagon is pushed down a hill, a huge hill, and we are treated to a gnarly covered wagon crash. 
This shot ended up being super rad. Number one, with the film sped up as it was, it looked like a super crazy ride. And two, the crash was fantastic. The thing hits super hard and one of the wheels busts off and did this crazy long rollout, which was super lucky that uh, the physics and the gravity all worked together. And they got this on two cameras, so it was twice as nice. It was a beautiful shot that, that whenever you're making a movie, you don't always have planned, but it's cool when these things work out like this. And it certainly... They got a little extra on this shot. Luckily, young Dave survives the crash. As he's getting his faculties back and preparing to protect himself, two members of the tribe are hunting down Rex. They catch him and roughly attempt to tie him up. According to the film, for the first time, Rex felt harsh hands, and into his heart came a hatred for Indians which was to endure forever. On the bright side, they failed and Rex was able to escape. As he runs off, Dave watches down in the valley as the attackers burn and destroy the remaining people and wagons. Next up, we see Rex come across a discarded headdress. He sniffs it, and we are told, A forlorn colt, an Indian bonnet, forgotten was the fear of the wilderness. Instead, a blaze of fury kindled by the Indian smell. While Rex rages against the machine, young Dave comes to grips with what has happened. As we see the cavalry roll in, we learn that these patrols keep the wagons protected, but often arrive just a little too late. The patrol comes rushing down the mountain and engage the attackers. A huge skirmish breaks out, and many of the Native Americans lay dead, while the rest retreat. As this happens, Rex continues to destroy the heck out of that Indian headdress. So now time has passed, and we are alerted to a new threat in the land. 1880, a new terror swept the Indian tribes. The supernatural fear of a devil horse, a black scourge with killing hoofs. We are back at the powwow as the strange tales were told of this devil horse who made war on the Indian, who mangled and killed. Rex gets a, gets a cool hero shot here as he stands majestically atop a rocky cliff as the Native Americans... Uh, tell terror stories of his of his attacks which they will live up to they will live up to the tales this is about the point in the film where it officially really starts to tell the story from rex's point of view and the other horses later on i do have to admit that the way they do this throughout the movie really does connect the viewer to the horses they certainly seem like more interesting and fleshed out characters than uh, most of the humans which which you will see later on but you can tell this movie it was definitely a vehicle for the horses. Now the film tells us the devil horse, Rex, full grown, leader of a herd, hating all Indians, holding a faint memory of the little boy who had petted him. From his mountaintop, Rex sees two Native Americans in a canoe. This throws Rex into a fit. He runs at them, charges them. One attempts to fire an arrow, but it fails. The two attempt an escape back into the river, but that doesn't stop Rex's rage. It cuts to a search party looking for the two men. They find their comrades washed up on shore, dead. Bloody hoof marks cover their corpses. This leads us back to the powwow. By the dying fires, the medicine man called on the great spirit to save them from the wrath of the slain steed. Now, I actually really dug this part and concept of the movie. Not the Indian hunting, but... The mysterious creature wreaking havoc. As a, as a fan of paranormal and unexplained and cryptozoology, all that cool stuff, 
One of my all-time favorites is The Beast of Javudan. If you've ever seen Brotherhood of the Wolf, is a really cool, action-packed telling of the Beast story. But basically, the Beast of Javudan was a man-eating creature that terrorized the mountains of south-central France between, 19, between 1764 and 1767. And the Kingdom of France spent considerable resources and manpower to kill the Beast. And the attacks would eventually stop, but with no real answers. So, I dig the Beast of Javudan vibe that is given to Rex in this film. I like a mysterious creature attacking people. Kind of gives it a little supernatural element to it, which I, which I really dig. Back to the powwow and our introduction to, spotted to the Spotted Horse tribe. Indians, in their superstitious terrors, they held the white men responsible for the devil horse. And were secretly preparing to go on the warpath. The army of the Native Americans begins amassing at this point. In addition to the Spotted Horse Tribe, we get our first introduction to Prowling Wolf, a young chief, cruel, crafty, false in his pose of friendship to the whites. He fanned the flame of war in his people. Prowling Wolf here was played by veteran screen actor Bob Cortman. Boyd Majors via westernclippings.com gives us an insightful breakdown of Cortman's career. He says, with the, face of the Lord, with the face the Lord bestowed upon Bob Cortman, he couldn't play anything but a mean, nasty, heavy. His skeletal, high cheekbones, hollow cheeks, crooked evil smile, and glaring eyes definitely branded him an outlaw. Cortman would consistently work from the days of the silence to well into the 50s in 250 films, with 90% of them being westerns. Prowling Wolf's horse is named Killer the spotted horse mentioned earlier. He was leader of the spotted horses. Proud of the splotched markings of his herd, he tolerated no others. So, if he sees an all-black horse, all-white horse, it doesn't matter. Unless you got spots on you, this guy, this horse hates you and will kill you. Now, this bit of the film, and a few other times as the movie goes on, has some cool footage of herds of horses. If, it feels almost like a nature documentary... Like, if you didn't know and you just tuned in, you'd think you're watching some old National Geographic footage, but the horses are all well-trained or at least seem that way. As weird as it sounds, everything happening in the herd scenes actually serves as great character moments for the star horses later on. The, we learn the outer fringe of an Indian camp would find Rex watching, waiting for an opportunity to wreak vengeance on still another red man, the movie tells us. Rex watches the growing Native American army, and he decides discretion is the better part of valor in this instance. As Rex eyes and spies, he gets super agitated and angry. Like, almost uh, violently so. This is a great look at Rex and how rough around the edges he was, and how scary being near him could be. Knowing how he was brought up and raised, you can see the effects in his behavior on set. And I can tell you now that I prefer admiring Rex from a distance just to be safe like we heard earlier he attacked Yakima Kanut he's just a really rough you had to be either really brave or really talented to know how to keep this keep this guy under control and a lot of these scenes when you watch him just getting agitated getting angry like it doesn't doesn't really feel as much acting as it is just I feel like that's Rex so, yeah, I'd rather watch it on TV than uh, be too close to him. But 
After a quick call to action by Rex to his herd, we moved to Fort Baldwin, one of, the str- one of a string of forts placed along the line of westward travel, Major Morrow commanding. Inside the fort, we are then introduced to Marion Morrow, daughter of the regiment, swaddled in the flag, her father's aide-de-camp. And while we are on the topic of meeting new characters, we now meet the third of the main three horses, Lady. She's an all-white horse, described as Lady, both in name and rank. Inside the fort, Prowling Wolf, in the guise of being friendly with the old pale faces, is suspiciously hanging out, trying to make small talk with Marion, who has no time for his shenanigans, as she is putting her hat on and taking Lady out for a ride. As she rides out, our attention is turned to a grown Dave Carson, and gives us a glimpse into what he has been up to since his childhood, of massacres and such. Dave Carson, now an army scout, with never-ending hatred for the Red Man, who, who had robbed him of his parents. This is our first on-screen glimpse of Yakima Knut. So now Marion is hanging out Riverside as Lady goes for a stroll. Rex sees Lady from a distance, recognizing in Lady the breeding of civilization, remembering dimly the caressing hands of a boy, he gallops to her. The two play a game of cat and mouse, and hard to get with each other. Lady was thrilled, fascinated by the great black, we are told. Now this next line is possibly my favorite of the whole flick. Get ready to bask in the greatness. It wasn't like Lady to take up with strange men, but Rex had a way with women. I love this stuff. When the horses are really being characters, the inner titles had me cracking up and fascinated at the same time. I found these bits to be really bizarre, but I still dug it so, so much. This is different from any film I have ever seen. And this exchange was the absolute best and definitely won me over. So, after the wooing of Rex and Lady, we mirror that with the meeting of Dave Carson and Marion Morrow. Dave runs into Marion when she's sitting on the side of the lake or the river or whatever. He tells her she should be careful, but she's not worried. Even though Prowling Wolf is creeping on them from a distance, Rex can smell him. And then Dave sees a legion of Prowling Wolf's henchmen and tells Marion to get back to the fort ASAP. Now, this leads into a fight, or at least a series of events that lead to a fight between Prowling Wolf and Dave Carson. So first we see a cool chase scene between Yakima between Dave Carson and Prowling Wolf's men. And there's some really cool stunts and some really cool tricks that uh, nowadays seem quaint and not as impressive, but for the time they were made, they it's a really cool chase scene. And you see a lot of what would come in future chase scenes uh, here, the, the beginnings, the origins, if you will. So as the chase goes on, eventually Carson is knocked down and overpowered by the group of Prowling Wolf's men. Prowling Wolf makes his way to Marion and says that she will make him a good squaw. So with Dave subdued, Prowling Wolf starts to leave on horseback, but Dave fights back and jumps on with Prowling Wolf. Again, we didn't even have to wait very long to get another really cool stunt bit. As Prowling Wolf is riding his horse uh, down the mountain through the plains, 
Yakima Canut is hanging on to the side of this horse, and they're fighting and punching and going at it as the horse is, is galloping, as Killer is galloping across the galloping across the way. This is where you see that uh, Yakima is so, so good at what he does already, and he's only going to get better. So, he fought it off first, but this time Dave finally succumbs to the numbers game. Prowling Wolf's big plan, once he has Dave, is to use the Devil Horse to his advantage. We learn from the movie that Dave was forced towards the lair of the Devil Horse. And he waited for the sound of thundering hoofs. Straight for his next victim, Rex rushed with a red fury in his heart. This leads to a standoff in a battle of wills, horse versus man. Prowling Wolf and his boys look on from a distance. A vague something holds back the killing hooves, something Rex could not understand. Rex nudges ca the captive Dave, unable to attack. Rex backs off as Dave breaks free of being tied to the tree. The two look at each other as we flash back to that earlier, less rage-fueled time when a young Dave would pet and feed Lil Rex. Rex runs over, basically, into Dave's arms. The film confirms our suspicions. Across the span of years flashed a vivid memory. Rex knew he'd found the boy. Dave knew he'd found his colt. Watching this reunion is a good example of how this movie is hooking me. As a viewer, I'm totally sold on this reunion, and oddly enough, basically it's Rex's acting that's doing this. I don't know what it is. Uh, I never thought I would say that a horse acting would sucker me in, would, would catch me. But Rex has it. He has the X factor. He has that charisma. I don't know what it is, but he's got it. And it really does help to, uh, to suck you in. I don't know if it's the trainers, if it's Rex himself, if the director, the way they're filming it. Whatever they're doing, it, uh, it works. And we'll see this a handful of times more throughout the movie. Just how these, how these animals are able to, to woo us, for, for lack of a better word. So... Now that the reunion has happened, Prowling Wolf and his men run tail-tucked firmly between their legs. But Prowling Wolf's capers are far from over, not by a long shot. It's his next scheme to start a war. Prowling Wolf hastened to the fort with lying words, we're told, so that, the, that he might weaken the military defense before Dave Carson could return with news of the Indian uprising. Now, one thing we learned about Prowling Wolf throughout this movie is that he is uh, incredibly inept and incompetent. He's basically the wily e. coyote of this universe. He always has these plans, but they, time and time again, as you see throughout the movie, everything he plans always fails. So, he's a bad leader, he's a bad... Uh, planner, uh, that's just one of the recurring themes. Prowling Wolf is not good at his job. So, speaking of Prowling Wolf, he gets back to the fort and tells Com Commander Moro that the Comanches are amassing in the valley to make war on the tribe of old Prowling Wolf. It will take all of your troops to turn them back, he pleads. 
Believing Prowling Wolf's information to be true, Major Morrow sends his forces to Bighorn Valley. With all the troops heading out, Marion doesn't want to miss any of the action. She hops up onto Lady before speeding off to the front lines. Prowling Wolf watches as the troops head out, leaving the fort woefully underdefended. Marion joins at the head of the cavalry. Elsewhere, Dave Carson is trying his best to calm Rex and get him to accept a saddle, but Rex ain't having it. He is being his usual surly, ornery self. And that's where I would let things go. But Dave Carson, being a lifelong friend of Rex's, he keeps going. He eventually he eventually works his way into into trust with, with Rex. And we watch this this little back and forth between the two play out. And it's a really charming, uh, enjoyable watch. Now, Marion, at this point, has gone ahead on her own. When that skeezy, prowling wolf approaches her, she asks what he wants. Me want you, he says. Pale-faced soldier gone. Soon my braves attack fort. You be my squaw. Marion wants none of what prowling wolf is selling. But he motions to his men who attack and capture her as Lady runs off. We're back with Rex and Dave. He finally is able to get that saddle on his childhood pal. Through the wilderness, the news spread. The devil horse had caught and tamed a man, we're told. Carson hops on and starts riding. Maybe it's because I already know about Rex's aggressive proclivities and it taints and alters my perceptions, but... Yakima Kanut shows really, really good horsemanship because Rex looks like he is going to freak out or spaz at any moment. And uh, a lot of this, I got anxiety watching. Even knowing everyone survives and lives and everyone's okay, I got anxious trying to watch Yakima ride, uh, ride Rex. But Yakima, as a person with a lifelong experience of bucking Broncos and stuff, um, was able to keep Rex under control. The man on his back. For a moment, he thrilled at the sensation. Then, Rex goes to full bucking Bronco. For the next minute or so, we are treated to a crazy, intense bucking action. It was legit scary looking. Yakima cannot put his years of bucking Bronco riding to amazing use here. The topper to all this intense as hell action was that Rex was bucking downhill, which looked really dangerous and and nuts. But on the the couch side watching it, it looked phenomenal. I can't adequately convey how cool this footage was and how it really put over the wildness of Rex and the skill of Yakima Dave Canut Carson. Since we're talking about cool footage, let's break a bit from the movie and talk about Jackman family connection number two here. Let's talk about the cinematographer who captured all this rad, rad footage, Floyd Jackman. He's the brother of director Fred Jackman. Finding a lot of biographical data on Floyd was tough and info was scanty, but here's what I do know. He was born on March 27, 1885 in Columbia, Iowa. And he died on November 27, 1967, at the age of 77 in Hollywood, California. The best list of his output is on IMDb.com, which lists 27 films he was cinematographer on. 
It was a mix of shorts and features, and amongst his work was the Rex films Black Cyclone and King of the Wild Horses. His first film was in 1918, and his final film in 1928. Now, after the Buckfest, Carson asks if Rex now knows who's boss. Rex answers by promptly bucking Dave off. We leave the two friends to learn. Muffled rhythm of moccasined feet in the wedding in the wedding dancer awaiting Savage, a terrified white girl. Marion had been brought back to the village surrounded by dancing and celebrated Native Americans. All around a huge central campfire bonfire type situation. But with all this going on, Rex senses a disturbance in the horse force. It's Lady. For down in the hated Indian village, Rex saw Lady tied, heard her call to him, the film tells us. So we find out what happened after Lady ran off. She was captured again by the natives. Rex heads down and tries to help Lady escape while her captors powwow. Instinctively, Rex thought of the man, his man, in the hour of trouble. So Rex runs to get Dave, who's asleep. Rex wakes him up, but he must tell this man, must make him understand. How can he make him hurry? Rex wonders. Then he gets an idea and runs over to the saddle, the hated saddle. We are reminded. Rex could think of no greater sacrifice for Lady. Rex picks up the saddle and brings it over to Dave. And with that, Dave hops on, and Rex gets to galloping. The movie tells us, the mo- or, sorry, the movie tells us, Dave's hand laid no guiding weight on Rex's rein. The King of Wild Horses blazed his own thundering trail. While some of our attention is on the Crow Tribe village, this seems like a good time to delve a little more into the Crow people. There's a lot of history involved with the Crow, and reading a lot was a bit overwhelming and tough to fit into a bite-sized morsel here. But I did f- learn that Crow Indians are a Plains tribe. During the expansion to the West, the Crow Nation was allied with the United States against its neighbors and rivals, the Sioux and the Cheyenne. In historical times, the Crow lived in the Yellowstone River Valley, which extends from present-day Wyoming through Montana and into North Dakota, where it joins the Missouri River. Since the 19th century, Crow people have been concentrated on their reservation established south of Billings, Montana. Today, they live in several major, mainly western cities. After you finish this podcast, please take a dive, take, take a dive into the Crow tribe and its history. It's fascinating stuff and totally, totally, totally deserving of your time. And to be honest, it's not a tribe I was any familiar with. You have your, your, your Sioux, your Cheyenne, like the stuff that the tribes that you've heard mostly about. But I'd never heard of the Crow tribe or never knew they even existed. And their their story is incredibly interesting and fascinating and definitely worth uh, doing yourself a service and diving into um, whenever you get the chance. But now, back to the movie. Uh, so Major Morrow has now caught up with Dave Carson. The huge campfire led the troops to the village and Dave. Dave tells Morrow... We are too badly outnumbered to fight. Rex and I will ride it alone. This next part was pretty cool. Carson and Rex use a little trickeration to get the upper hand on their adversaries. The two gallop towards the camp. Dave Carson 
has some sort of flash or fireball things in his hand. A trick. Furious clatter of hoofs, a black cyclone tipped with balls of flame. It's the devil horse, the natives yell in terror. Dave and Rex ride through the village, bringing fear and chaos to the powwow. The tribe scatters in terror and the devil of the devil horse. In all the craziness, Dave finds Marion, gets her onto Rex, and they skedaddle. So I thought it was a nice touch that they, they play into the, the horror and the supernatural elements of of Rex, of the devil horse. And it made for some really cool visuals and some cool sights of watching watching the two of them ride down with fiery things in his in his hands. So now it's daylight. Dave, Rex, and Marion are back at the fort, but Rex is troubled still. His people were safe, but what of Lady? It's funny he should think that, because at this moment, poor Lady is being accosted by Killer, Prowling Wolf's jerky splotched horse. Rex can't take not knowing, so he leaves the fort and gallops his way back to the now-deserted village. Rex hears Lady's calls. The film tells us Lady, his Lady... With the killing, stealing Indian horse, the devil and Rex surged. The three parties, the three parties cross paths in a river. A fight breaks out between Rex and Killer. Remember, they're fighting in the middle of a river, with Lady looking on. After fighting a bit in the river and on the rocks at Riverside, a chase ensues back onto solid ground and into a wooded area. This, I feel pretty safe in saying, is the first horse versus horse fight scene. I've ever seen on film. And when I say horse fight scene, I mean a real-life, honest-to-goodness honest horse fight. I mean, it looked real. I have a sneaking suspicion it was real. Rex and Killer really go at it, all, all the while Lady looks on in terror. But these two guys are kicking each other, headbutting each other, probably biting each other. Like, it looks vicious. It looks like two angry dudes just going at each other, except they're horses. And it was intense and has to be seen to be believed. There are a few moments in this film that I will never forget. And this fight is one of them. And one of my highlights of the whole movie. Eventually, Rex emerges victorious and Killer runs off. Rex and Lady share a tender post-fight moment with each other before galloping off together. Now fast forward a bit and it's night and the tribe around the big fire plans their next attack. When the sun god sends us light... We will drive the pale face from our lands. As the attack is being hashed out, Rex and Lady return to the fort. The two love horses canoodle a bit in their pen as the attackers bear down on Fort Paleface. As this attack unfolds, we get some great large-scale battle scenes here. Watching these fantastic fights brings us back to Fred Jackman, the director of The Devil Horse, and the third branch on this film's Jackman Family Tree of Participation. Fred, like his brother Floyd, was also born in Iowa, but on July 9th, 1881. Also, like his brother, he would get his start in show business as a cinematographer, which he did in, on 58 films between 1916 and 1925. He would also direct 11 films, with three of those starring Rex the Wonder Horse. His time directing was about an eight-year span, with those 11 pictures happening between 1919 and 1927-ish, somewhere around there, 26, 27. On top of all that, he would serve as president of the American Society of Cinematographers from 1921 to 1923. 
So he was definitely a busy, busy man with lots of irons and a lot of fires. Um, so basically, he was a cinematographer till 1925. He directed movies till 1927, and he was a the president of the ASC for two years, from 21 to 23. So from 21 to 23, he was directing, he was being a cinematographer, and he was the president of the ASC. That is a pretty good work ethic, I would say. Uh, Fred Jackman passed away on August 27, 1959, at the age of 78 in Hollywood, California. So in the movie universe, the battle's continuing with the defenders of the fort hopelessly outnumbered, but they continue to fight the good fight. Everyone in the fort, man, woman, and child, takes up arms in defense of the fort. In the commotion, Prowling Wolf uses a secret, mysterious tunnel to sneak into the fort, where he proceeds to throw a bomb of some sort into the cellar of some sort. Eventually, we'll learn that the cellar housed the fort's ammunition. With it destroyed, there is no hope of survival. Nah, I'm just kidding. It's a movie, so there is always hope of survival, and chances are we're all going to make the, make it out of this okay. So Morrow tells Carson, there's one chance in a thousand. A supply wagon is somewhere between here and Fort Custer. As a quick aside, before we gallop into the big finale, this picture was filmed primarily in Little Bighorn River, Montana, in Iverson Ranch in Los Angeles. I have a terrible memory and almost forgot to pass that along, so... That's This is the point of the movie where you get it. So, now back to the action. Uh, Dave tells his plan to Rex. Run for it, Rex. They're afraid to kill you. Wait for me outside. Oh yeah, Dave and Marion share a big kiss before all the action starts. So, now Rex is outside running. Dave sneaks out to meet him, but is chased by his enemies down a tall, rocky outcropping. It was definitely a cool chase scene, but Dave was up for since he was young and athletic. As a friend of mine once said, he is young and athletic. And being so young and athletic, he's trapped on a high cliff overlooking water. So Dave does a super jump off the cliff into the water. Again, stunts and Yakima Canute, they go together. Next is a surprisingly long swimming scene. I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. Dave jumps off cliff into river. He starts swimming. Attackers jump in river to swim after him. Rex gets into water and starts swimming towards Dave. Now everyone is swimming, and the film keeps cutting to each person, horse, swimming. It's a very weird scene, to be honest. It's very over the top on telling the viewer that there's swimming going on. So in case you didn't know, we've got a bunch of people, an animal, and they're all swimming. Eventually, Rex gets to Dave, and they ride out of the water as the people chasing them are swept on down the river. Well, the movie tells us that the battle against the raging current had weakened Rex. Could he stand up under the long ride to come? Surprise, surprise, Rex was up to the task. The battle rages back and forth. I'm sorry, the battle rages back and forth at the fort, and the horse and horsemen gallop their way to the wagon. Get the troop, Bighorn Valley, Indians attacking the fort. Dave loads Rex up with ammo and sends him ahead. Trying to get through to the fort, old friend, Carson says, and God be with you. With Rex on his way, Prowling Wolf is setting up an ambush to finally finish up the heroically antisocial horse. Prowling Wolf perches on, per, 
latches on a rocky outcropping and fires a couple of arrows at the galloping rex, but misses, because none of Prowling Wolf's attack plans ever work. With Dave Carson not far behind, Prowling Wolf decides uh, plan B, he's going to attack Dave Carson as he comes by and decides he wasn't successful against a horse target. How about I try a human target? This time he jumps off the rocks as Dave drives through. He knocks him off his horse and a ground battle begins. The two men grapple and wrestle with each, with each other. Prowling Wolf grabs Dave's gun but is unable to hang on. After more tussling, Dave gets the gun and holds it on Wolf. Wolf quickly shoves Dave, who falls and hits his head on a rock. Prowling Wolf calls over his minions. He puffs his chest about how he bested the pale face. Him and his gang take off. One Indian remains with Dave Carson. This part kind of threw me for a loop. I thought the minion who stayed behind was going to make a face turn and help Dave Carson, but I was wrong. He kneels down, pulls out a knife, and prepares to scalp Carson. But with a fort to save, Dave comes to, fights off the scalper, who accidentally then gets stabbed with his own knife and dies. Dave grabs a rifle and chases after his attackers. Rex corners Prowling Wolf and his men. The minions run off, leaving Prowling Wolf to try and fend off a Rex attack. Despite an attempt at hiding, Rex is able to attack and kill the treacherous Prowling Wolf. His beaten, battered, and half... His beat... Sorry... His beaten, battered, and hoofprint-laden body lays strewn about the ground. Now, with the character... uh, Take a little uh, sidestep here. With the character of Prowling Wolf exiting our story, let's talk a little bit about Bob Cortman and his life post-Devil Horse. Again, this is via Boyd Majors on westernclippings.com. Widowed, Bob Cortman, truly one of the best of the bad men, died March 13, 1967, at 69 as a result of cancer at the VA hospital in Long Beach, California, where he had been a patient for three months. His death certificate indicates military service in World War I, apparently circa mid-1917 to mid-1919, judging by his lack of screen credits during that period. Cortman's remains were cremated and are at rest at Montecito Park in Colton, California. And, and as a total, total aside, uh, veering away from the movie for a second, and Bob Cortman, uh, I found that one of his last films was 1952's Aaron Slick from Pumpkin, from Pumpkin Crick. Here in Pittsburgh, the Penguins hockey team has a legendary announcer named Mike Lang, who non-Pittsburghers may remember from the Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, Super hit, awesome movie, Sudden Death. Uh, he has a long list of catchphrases and sayings. One uh, always says these things uh, when the, the Pens score a goal. And one of the things he says when they score is, call Arnold Slick from Turtle Crick. Now, when I saw there's an Aaron Slick from Pumpkin Crick, I thought, I wonder if this film inspired that. Uh, totally apropos of nothing, but... It was an interesting fact with zero connection to the movie, so uh, how about we get back to the movie, shall we? So the battle between Dave, Prowling Wolf, Rex, and the Minions was going on. Fire has been set to the fort. The end is certainly nigh if Rex can't get back. Uh, He is able to fight off and elude the Minions in a really cool and clever chase scene. 
there was man versus or minions versus horse. And just as all hope is lost, Rex charges into the fort and makes a beeline to Lady. Like any great action hero, battle and gunfire is not enough to stop a horse in love. With the refill of ammo, also comes the cavalry to fend off the intruders. Remember, the cavalry is always just a little bit too late, and that proves to be true here as well. The day has been won. Dave Carson smiles as he watches the cavalry reclaim control of the fort. Now, the movie jumps a little ahead a little bit in time, and it tells us, in the sun glow of a happier day, we, see, we go on to see Rex and Lady, and at Lady's feet lies a, lies a baby horse who looks just like Lil Rex. The happy family nuzzles each other as Dave Carson and Marion cuddle and watch from a distance. But we still have one unaccounted bad guy, and that's Killer the Horse, who watches the happy family, human and horse, from a distance. But since he's a scaredy cat heel, a couple of donkeys scare him off and he runs away and chased by those donkeys. And the movie ends with a beautiful horse family photo being shown to us as the movie fades out. And we are told that is the end of the devil horse. Yee-haw and woo-a-doggy. Was that a movie? What? That is probably the quintessential Western experience. It was something, and I can't say it's something I've ever experienced before. I never would have thought horse fighting... And a horse love triangle were two things that I would see in this movie and that those spots on my silent film bingo card would be filled out, but they were, and it was a ride to be sure. Obviously, first and foremost, let's talk about the things that didn't work for me. Easily, the biggest is the language used in it uh, for obvious reasons, and it shows its age, surely. As I talked about when discussing the film scene by scene, there's definitely a lot of a lot of that in the written word that is disrespectful to Native Americans. The terms should never be used. And in current society, seeing those words in terms is especially jarring. And while we're on the topic of stuff I'm not a fan of, let's talk about the humans of the Devil Horse. Now, when this movie was put together, I realized that the filmmakers were going for the humans were a vehicle to tell a horse story. They were about as thin as possible. Dave Carson, played by Yakima Kanut, was about as close to a full character as we got. And this isn't bashing on the performances. Not bashing at all. This was just an instance of the horses being the spotlight and the human actors doing the best they can with what they were given to work with. Also on the topic of characters, we have the Native American Indians of the flick. They're not really portrayed in the best of light, and a lot of that is exemplified by the character of Prowling Wolf. Now, Bob Cortman did good work. He's a good villain. He's a good heel. He did what he was supposed to. But I understand it was the times, and that expecting a Native American to be cast in the lead role in a movie like this wasn't going to happen. So Cortman was cast and really played this up as a super mustache-twirling villain. Though Cortman often portrayed villain, this one was, in retrospect, probably a bad choice ethnicity-wise, but... Like I said, in the 1920s, they weren't thinking about this stuff. So it it's jarring to, to us in current times. But uh, 
common, I would is the best way to say it back then. And like I said earlier, he wasn't really a three-dimensional character. He was just just a bad guy. Um, so it was kind of a double whammy that it was the ethnicity thing and that it wasn't the most fully thought-out, fledged-out character. So it's kind of a double whammy there. But since I've been a bit harsher on this than usual, this is probably a good time to talk about the stuff the movie did right. First, the actual using of Native Americans in it was cool. There was one white guy that played one Native American, but at least credit-wise, they had Crow members of the Crow tribe there, the powwow, all that stuff. When there was big scenes with lots of Native Americans, I thought it was really cool that I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I I feel like they went authentic. They were going for authentic authenticity with that. So I have to say, it's a negative Bob Cortman being a prowling wolf, but it was cool that they were able to get a lot of other Native Americans in there uh, as tribesmen and women. Um, second, the visuals were great. The footage that was captured was super rad, from the horse fights to the action scenes. Everything looked fantastic. The large-scale battles were especially especially well done. And also, a special mention to the stallion battle parts, since according to imdb.com, they outlived the film themselves. The battle between the stallions has been edited into Wild Horse Roundup in 1936, Coming Around the Mountain in 1936, Hit the Saddle in 1937, The Devil Horse uh, in 1932, The Phantom of the West in 1930, Law of the Wind in 34, and The Painted Stallion in 37. Also, as one would expect, the stunt work was phenomenal. Yakima Kanut definitely gave us a great glimpse into his soon-to-be action movie stunt awesomeness. Also, I can't skip on chatting about our horse stars. They make this film, really. This is the first movie that I can recall seeing that combined realism with animal main characters that had thoughts and emotions. I was invested in Rex, Lady, and Killer, and the journey of the animals was great to watch. Like, the performances they were able to give were well worth the price of admission. So basically, a rootin' tootin' good time, as a grizzled cowboy might or probably might not say. Now that I've given you all the good, the bad, and the ugly, this seems as good a time as any to welcome an old friend back to the show. That would be none other than everyone's favorite passive-aggressive film reviewer from the New York Times, the one and only Mordent Hall. Now, it's been a few episodes since we've gotten a soundbite or sound quote uh, from him. Back on July 5th, 1926, Mordent had this to say about the devil horse. In it figures that remarkable horse named Rex. The two other animals, the killer and the heroine lady, are also to be seen in this production. There are some striking outdoor scenes in this film, many of them with different herds of horses. The killer, the equine villain, is a pinto who rages against animals of one color. The direction of this picture, even though one may look upon the performances of the animals as a reaction to something not included in the story, is admirable. Rex really appears to rage as he stamps with his hoofs, and the snorting killer strikes one as a menace only second to the Indians. As far as his reviews go, this went way better than usual. Perhaps we are on the precipice of a kinder, gentler Mordent Hall. No matter what, his review will have to suffice for this episode, 
IMDb has the Devil Horse at 5.9 out of 10, and review aggregation on RottenTomatoes.com has no reviews to aggregate. So take that for what you will. Before we ride off into the sunset, let's turn our attention back to Yakima Canut for a quick bit. Before dipping into the movie, I was talking about old Yak's later years. I'm picking that thread up again so we can get it into a nice little bow before heading out of the theater. So, like I was saying, as Knut aged, his body wasn't up for much death-defying, so he took a step back behind the camera to direct, choreograph, and plan stunts. In addition to that, it wouldn't be an action flick without a Knut doing crazy things on screen, so he trained two of his sons for the stunt world. In fact, Joe Knut was the stunt double for Charlton Heston in Ben-Hur Chariot Race, and famously went airborne during the stunt. Catherine Beck gives us a few more bits of info about Knut's later award accumulation. In 1967, Knut added an honorary Oscar to his collection of trophies, cups, belts, buckles, saddles, and medals from his rodeo career. Charlton Heston presents him with the award for achievements as a stuntman and second unit director, and for developing safety devices and techniques to make stunt work less dangerous and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame followed in 1985. He was even able to get inducted into the National Cowboy Hall of Fame in 1975. On the topic of the star, next time you are on Hollywood, head to 1500 Vine Street and pay your respects. He received that honor and recognition on August 14, 1985. And before we press on, I just wanted to share one quote from Charlton Heston that really encapsulates Yakima Knut's impact on stunts and in Hollywood overall. And a look at Knut as a man as well. Charlton Heston had this to say, It's not only his work, but he himself who provides us with a medal. Let me start that over again. I ruined that. Charlton Heston said, It is not only his work, but he himself who provides us with a model of the best kind of professional, the kind who always gives his best. In a time when, increasingly, nobody cares about excellence, Yak cared. Now, with the bios out of the way and the, bi and the movie out of the way, that means only one thing can be left. So as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent film stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite action hero cowboys on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle of cemetery exploration converge, and where are they now? Your guide to paying respects to the film stars who have entertained us so much. For today's trip to the great beyond, we are heading to the Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park in North Hollywood, California. Our particular focus will be on the Garden of Remembrance, the eternal home to Yakima Knut and his cremated ashes. Knut would die of cardiac arrest at the age of 89 in North Hollywood. He would be cremated, and those ashes were spread in the Garden of Remembrance. He was survived by his wife, a son, a brother, and a sister. In addition to his ashes, Knut also has a plaque at the cemetery's portal of Folded Wings Monument. On this show, we have visited a few Los Angeles and Hollywood area cemeteries, but this is the first glimpse we have had at Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park, which I need to come up with a better abbreviation because that is... A long thing to say and write every single time. But that's neither here nor there. The cemetery was founded in 1923 with a funeral home opening in 1952. The cemetery's website gives us some historical background on the place. 
which happens to have some silent film connections. This is what the website says. The Spanish Mission Revival Cemetery entrance structure was designed by architect Kenneth MacDonald Jr. For the decorative stone castings, MacDonald hired Italian-born sculptor Federico A. Giorgi, who created a 30 who created 30-foot-tall statues of elephants and lions for the 1917 film Intolerance, and also created the exterior of the Million Dollar Theater. Yakima Kanut is one of many celebrities to call Valhalla their final home. Among those are Oliver Hardy, one half of Laurel and Hardy comedy team. There is also a Pinocchio double dip with Lee Harline, composer of When You Wish Upon a Star, and Cliff Edwards, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, both bar- interred there, buried there, uh, laid to rest there. And jumping back, 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 back in time to our first episode of the Golden Silence podcast when we covered the Battle of the Sexes. If you remember Belle Bennett, who played the mother in Battle of the Sexes, she is also laid to rest at Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park. And if you find yourself in North Hollywood, do yourself a favor and check out Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park at 10621 Victory Boulevard, North Hollywood, California, 91606. Uh, From the pictures I saw, it's a beautiful place and lots of lots of history, lots of aviation history if you're interested in it. Um, Some really, really cool stuff, so I can't uh, recommend looking into it enough. So, with that out of the way, it is time to close up this episode of the Golden Silence Podcast. But before we go our separate trails, remember to giddy up on Instagram and check out Golden Silence Cast and on Twitter at Golden Silence One. Let us know what you thought about Rex, Yakima, and the Devil Horse in general. Also, if you listen to the program on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please, 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 please rate the show and leave a review. It helps the show a ton, and we here appreciate it, and everyone at the Golden Silence Podcast appreciates all your help and your feedback. So thanks again to all you fine listeners for all your fine, fine listening. And remember, the silence are golden and the talkies are just a fad.